Good morning, everyone. Just got to check the clock, make sure it's morning. I, uh, my name is Rob Fairbanks, and I'm, um, I've been around the church for 20-some years at, at the beginning. I was there. That sounds like some sort of theological statement. <laughs> In the beginning, there was Rob. <laughs> Kevin, uh, just a quick question. Do you have to pay to get into the Fox? So, raise your hand if you've been to the Fox. Okay, how much did you have to pay to get in when you went? Give me a, give me a number. 65. 20. Okay, here's the deal. You get to go free... And you could bring 65 and put it in the offering to pay for it. Uh, no, really, it's a great opportunity. It's a fantastic place. It's uh, one of the showpieces of our city, so invite your friends. As I said, I'm, I'm Rob Fairbanks, and I, I was the pastor here up till about two and a half years ago, uh, of which you as a community sent me out as, and don't feel weird about this, but sent me out as an apostolic figure. Now, we don't have time to talk about what that might be. It's like in the best sense, in little a, not big A apostle, little a. And, uh, but I, I took on the leadership of a, a church planting organization that was founded in Western Europe. Uh, we're all over the globe right now, and we are a part of that. And so for the last month, I've been traveling, and uh, I got home this last Monday night. I don't know if I'm coherent right now because I'm still jet-lagging. Uh, I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning without an alarm clock, which is inexplicable, unexplainable. And so here I am. Uh, I may fall asleep right in the middle of my message, which is the nightmare for every pastor. <laughs> I had a dream. I fell asleep in my message, and I woke up, and I was really talking. So um, hopefully it doesn't happen. What I want to do is just uh, for a few minutes before I, I share scripture with you, I want to tell you a little bit about the trip, because this is a part of you as well. Uh, Robbie and I, and actually John and Nancy Jansen, we went to Europe um, and took part in Christian Associates Leadership Summit. Before the summit, Robbie and I went to uh, a, another event that we had, which was um, in Grasse, France. And if you'll just shoot that first shot. Uh, it, it was an opportunity to talk about how we as Christians um, engage the immigrant population in Europe. Now, if you know much about what people movements in Europe particularly, there's a huge Muslim flow into Europe that's freaking a lot of Europeans out. And most of you can't relate to it. Uh, you just don't realize what's going on. Well, in this picture, the guy on the far left is the guy that works with me. His name's Brian Newman. He's a Jew from New York. He's one of the funnest guys to hang out with. He started this thing called the Isaac Ishmael Initiative. Isaac Ishmael how do Jews and Muslims get along? How do we actually love? And so what we did is we gathered in Grasse, France, and uh, Brian's Jewish, Wes uh, is from, lives all, lived all over the planet. The rest of the people are uh, either French or um, Tunisian uh, from Muslim background, Iranian, so forth. And so this group, we spent three days talking about what's a, what's a godly Christ-like posture in a culture that's changing. And so I got a chance to be a part of that, which was just a joy. Uh, hit the next one. Uh, this is my crazy French friend. And I, I, I affectionately call him that. His name is Vincent Derieux. And he is uh, one of the most unique people on the planet. 
Uh, I've gotten a chance to be around him several times. Uh, I won't even tell you some of the things that have happened when I've been around him, but th uh, this is his home, and they're hanging out with, with Vincent is sheer joy because he is a lover. And he has loved so well the immigrant populace in his city that you can walk through a city and be in, in, invited into almost every strata that there is, particularly where the Muslim men hang out and we can be in there and they treat him like a son. And it really has happened because he has loved so well. One of the kingdom moments that happened for me, and I don't know if this happens uh, when you travel, but there's these pinholes of like, oh, the kingdom of God has come. One of the evenings, we were going to a bar to hang out. Uh, this bar is in grass. And it, it, believe it or not, it's, it's in Grass, France, which is the perfume capital of the world. It's a Mexican restaurant and owned by a Tunisian Muslim. <laughs> Quite counterintuitive. So we're all walking down there, and, and Van Son has just been trying to love this guy. And we're walking down, and about 100 yards from the, from the, the bar, he just asks us all to stop. And there's about 15 of us. And he says, can, hey, can we just stop and put our shoulders together? And we all just formed a circle with our shoulders together. And he said, I would just like to pray um, that we would not only have fun as we go tonight, but that we would be able to be a redemptive presence. And for me, it might sound like so not that big of a deal, but oftentimes those of us who have embraced liberty, many of you aren't afraid to go in bars at this point, and it's no big deal, but oftentimes we're going in the bar or going somewhere, and we're going for ourselves, and we forget that we're supposed to be a redemptive presence. And Vincent modeled something quite coherent and whole of the way it ought to be. So that was, that was an exciting time. If you know your geography, you know grass is just up the hill from Cannes. Uh, the last day we were there, the film festival place, you know? Last day we were there, Robbie and I and the group all went down there. And if you'll hit the next one, this is... Uh, this is Robbie and Jolie. And they, if you're walking through the city, they have all these silhouettes, and you can put your face in all of them. I was actually Samuel L. Jackson uh, in mine with a lightsaber. Uh, and so um, hit the next one. Uh, yes, that is, that's not Deer Lake. That is the Mediterranean, and I put down someone's got to do it. So. We were in the uh, south of France for three or four days, and then we <clears throat> flew to London, and we actually uh, had our International Leadership Summit there. And if you'll flip to the next one, this is, this is Jason Clark. He's a theologian, British guy. He was one of the plenary speakers. <laughs> we're both bald. <laughs> I, I should have superimposed Russ's head on there, too. <laughs> so um, it was just a fantastic time of people from all over the place, and many countries, many languages, many cultures. And <clears throat> just so you know, I just showed a picture of us sitting on the Mediterranean. It might look like it's a vacation paradise, whatever, but my job is really engaging with a very diverse crowd. And like, for example, um, Bob and I, we're similar age, and we speak the same language, and we come from similar places, both in the Northwest, and it's a one-to-one -one usually when we talk. And we have differences, but we at least are in the same culture, same language group. My job is really multicultural, multinational, multilanguage. And most of the people I interact with, English is their second language. So it's an exhausting process. And, and here, here's the cool part. 
Um, in the kingdom, that's the way it's going to be. I mean, right now, I look across the room, we have a monochromatic scale here. I mean, there's just white people that speak English. There's maybe an exception or two, but the fact is, in the kingdom, in the, in the new creation, it's going to be a kaleidoscope. And I get a chance to be a part of that, and, and really, so do you. You're, you've sent me into that. I feel very grateful. Um, if you'll shoot the next one up here. I got a chance to go to Leuven, Belgium. Which, I don't know if you know about Belgium, but it's split. It's Flemish and French. This is the Flemish side. Um, just before I got there, this small-named guy named Ravi Zacharias was there and uh, preached the gospel to 700 people. If you've traveled in Europe, to, to get 700 people out to hear someone talk about Jesus is not an easy feat. Now, you might think, well, Ravi Zacharias is really big time. Not there. No one knows who Ravi Zacharias is. They don't have Christian radio. They don't know who he is. So, in essence, it was a big deal, and we did this event here, finding true love and making it last. Our psychologist on our staff did that. Another two or 300 people showed up for that. Uh, this uh, uh, Flemish guy by the name of Horace Henrat pro uh, heads that project, and he's just doing a fantastic job. From there, I flew to Holland. Uh, by this time, I'm longing for Spokane. I, I, I really like our city. I was in the places everybody goes, visits, goes to visit, and I thought, I want to be in Spokane. So I was in Holland, and one of the second churches that CA planted was this church in Amsterdam. It's a huge church, one of the largest church, uh, Protestant churches in Europe at this point. And uh, believe it or not, our organization and the church that started together uh, got sideways with each other about six or seven years ago and have not made it back. And as, as a result of some hard work and gracious work by a whole bunch of people, we got involved with each other again. And this was, I put reconciliation, this was a very form formal meeting I, I got a chance to take part in. Now, I'm not a formal guy. I'm dressed up for you. <laughs> and the, uh, the Dutch can be quite formal. And I didn't really know what to make of this meeting. I mean, we're going to have this big meeting. We're going to have this declaration, sign this document, take pictures, all this stuff. And I'm sitting there just going, uh, I don't know what's going on. And uh, probably judge judging behind the curtain. And about two-thirds of the way through the meeting, I was struck by the power of forgiveness. I really believe that in this epic, in this era we're in right now, forgiveness is, if not the greatest, at least one of the most profound apologetics we have for the world. How we treat each other and how we forgive communicates something that is, that is otherworldly. And I got a chance to be a part of it right here. Years of entrenchment changed. And I got a chance to sit in on it. And it was one of those moments where I can honestly say, your kingdom has come. And it your kingdom is here right now. And so that was a beautiful moment for me. And then, uh, by the way, the guy on the left is their new pastor. Uh, he's a wee Scottish man. Very fun guy. I really like him a lot. We've become friends. Okay, hit the last one. This is me speaking at the church. Uh, the last one. There. And uh, this, is a, this is a church. They have three of these services 
And it, it's in the round. It's kind of like I were speaking where Robbie is right here. And everybody is around, right? So I have to go like a rotisserie oven, like turn around the entire time. I have to gear myself up to keep turning. Like, because like, if not, this is what it will look like. So, so I got a chance to, to teach the scriptures there with profound response, um, uh, again, along the lines of forgiveness. And it was just a, a great trip. And I, the reason I wanted to share some of those things with you is because this is you. Uh, you guys have sent Robbie and I, and, and, and we're involved in this, and uh, John and Nancy got a chance to take part in it, got a chance to experience a lot of that. And, and I just want to say I'm, I'm deeply grateful. I'm very thankful for this community. All right. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Any questions before I go on? I think it was Shane that was asking me before the service, like, what do you do exactly? What, do you, what is it you do? I just have coffee on the Mediterranean. That's what I do. <laughs> I get a chance to lead an organization that's doing what this church is doing in the world. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. And then he shouted all the they shouted all the louder, Master, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. The story is a pretty straightforward story, right? Jesus is leaving Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's walking along. There's these two blind guys. They're yelling. Master, that's really what the word means, not Lord. Master, son of David, messianic phrase. Have mercy on us. The, the crowd that's following says, okay, you guys need to settle down. The uproar is out of control. And that just exacerbates them. And they shout even louder. Master, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus turns to them and asks the question that I think is one of the most unique questions in Scripture. What do you want me to do for you? Without hesitation, they said, we want to see. Literally, we want our eyes open. And it says, Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and they were healed immediately, and they followed. That's the story. When I think about what caused them to be so animated, to be so aggressive, I, I think of the idea of chronic pain, chronic struggle. Um, have you ever, and, and I'm assuming in this crowd, uh, have you ever experienced chronic physical or emotional pain? Uh, protracted illness, disability, emotional challenge, addiction. In, in this crowd, there's people who have experienced chronic pain. Now, I, I don't want to even try to line myself up next to anyone, but I can tell you I have experienced chronic pain. I've experienced a chronic condition. Now, you're all wondering what that might be. Uh, actually, when I was 19, I was a college athlete. I was playing, and I blew my knee out. Spent my whole life up to that point playing. 
physical. And uh, 19 or 20, raise your hand if you're 20 in here. There's a couple. Okay, just uh, this may be obvious, but at 20, you really don't know a lot, okay? <laughs> Sorry, no, seriously. Now, in some ways, I mean, you're, I know you're intellectually, but for me, as a 20-year-old, I thought I was invincible. You, you never think at 20 that you could have something wrong for the rest of your life. Sorry, didn't, if you're, I'll, I'll ask forgiveness later. <laughs> you just never think that. So, had the surgery, I didn't rehabilitate well, it felt fine, I played a lot, and essentially continued to make it worse. Played another year of basketball, I played for a coach that really didn't care whether I was healthy or not, and he just wanted me to play. Uh, and so I ground up a bunch of cartilage while I was playing. I played for swollen an entire year. I go to the doctor when the season's over. He says, we need to schedule a surgery for you. I go in, and they take a thimble full of cartilage, fragmented cartilage, off my knee joint. Uh, and this is what he said to me. It, it was, I was 20, and he said, Okay, this is the way you have to look at your knee. Your knee is like a tire. You get 40,000 miles. I'm here to tell you that you've already used your 40. And from that point on, I'm 53 right now. From that point on, I started, uh, I had this chronic injury, and I started growing bone. Now, I could pull my pant leg up and show you. It's really not a pretty knee. This one's lovely. <laughs> this one, however is grown bone over the last 30 years, and there's not one day, not one motion that I take that it doesn't hurt. I developed a clunk because of a bone spur that clunks every time I move my left joint. And the funny thing that happens, when you have something chronic, at least in my life, two things happen. Number one, you resign to it. You just go, that's just the way life is. But the other thing, it, it could be an and or, or, or both and, is this idea of you become desperate. Now, for me, I became desperate because I lived my whole life to play, and I didn't want to give that up, right? So I became desperate, and I started going to churches that I probably wouldn't even normally go to, but I knew that they would pray for me. So I would go, and I'd get anointed. I'd get my head anointed, and I'd get my hand anointed, my more head, and then my knee, which I really liked that part because they'd pour oil all over my knee and massage my knee. I would go back to that church. Because it was like a massage. But nothing happened. I still was growing bone. Um, there was a, a process in my life where I surrendered. Like I just, I did resign. I still dream though. I have these dreams of dunking on people. I'm not kidding. You can ask Robbie. Like, I'll be in this dream and I'm just oh, oh, like this. And Robbie says, you got to get up. No! I don't want to get up. I don't want to dunk some more. <laughs> See, desire, longing, passion is fueled by a dream of a different future, a hope or a vision. And it can be altruistic, which oftentimes happens in ministry, or it can be one that's, that bears out desperateness, despair, and can move people to quite profound public displays. We see it in the lady... In, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, where Jesus is moving along with a huge crowd, and this lady who's suffering from, from hemorrhaging, she's been hemorrhaging for years, 
She's unclean. It's against the code for her to get close to people. She's supposed to be crying out, unclean, unclean, whenever she gets near a crowd. And she comes up and she takes the risk and she goes and touches Jesus. And it says when she touches him, power went out from him and, he, and she was healed. What, 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 was, what was moving her to take such a risk? I mean, she was, she was in, in incredibly risky territory touching him. But she was healed. These two guys are desperate. In our story, Jesus asks them this question. What do you want me to do for you? When I see their response, I find it very illuminating because there's no hesitancy. It's not like they go, um, hmm, let me think. Uh, I have a grandma in New York. Really need some prayer. And no, no, listen, this is what happened. There wasn't a hesitant moment. There was no indecision. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And immediately they go, we want to see. We want to see. That was the cry of their heart. Literally, we want our eyes opened. I feel like they wanted it more than breath. So the question I always want to throw your way, and I don't want to be trite in this, but if Jesus were to ask you, what do you want me to do for you today? What would be your response? What would be the deepest desire that you have? What would your I want to see, I want my eyes open, be? If you could have any prayer answered. Now, let me say this, because uh, I'm going to share a caveat. Uh, I don't think Jesus is overly interested in your wish list. If you think it's your wish list, then you have missed the anguish of this story. You just don't you, don't, you haven't gotten to that point yet. In verse 34, uh, Christ has compassion on them <clears throat> and touches their eyes, and they're healed. And it says, it says they're healed immediately. Now, here's another question I want to grapple with is, what do we, how do we realistically interpret this idea of immediate? Uh, the first blush would be right now. It, I mean, it happened immediately. That makes some sense, right? The, the problem with arriving at that point is we think that that's normative and we project that on God. And if God doesn't answer our thing immediately, we, we call foul. We blame him uh, for not appropriating what we see in Scripture. Oftentimes, when I, when I talk to people, they cite the book of Acts for this. I mean, I read the book of Acts, and, I, and what happens is someone has a problem, they pray, and they're miraculously healed. Someone has a problem, they pray, and they're miraculously healed. Can I help you with a hermeneutic, with an interpretive rule for the book of Acts? This would be very simple for you. The book of Acts is like Sports Center. It's like Sports Center. It doesn't show you all the, the, the hours and years of toiling. It just shows you Brittany Griner dunking on somebody. <laughs> Which is quite amazing. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Gosh, I have to go back to YouTube and watch it over and over. It's just crazy. But the book of Acts is like a highlight reel. So we look at it and go, that happened, that happened, that happened. But what we're looking at is the mountaintop. We don't see all that grinding that happens in life beneath it. And I think it's, it, 
it leads me to move toward a different interpretation of the word immediate. Let me give you another picture. Another way that we can look at it is I would suggest, and it's more, I would suggest that it's more normal, immediately happens at the end of a long series of the grindings of life. In other words, it's instantaneous, but it's the end of a, a progression of other things. Here's the question. Did these guys long to be healed before this immediate healing? Yeah. Did, did they toil? Did they hurt? Did they despair before the immediate? Even more pointed as a question, do you think that they maybe even prayed and begged God for an answer before this time? I'm, hey, if you've, if you've been in a chronic situation, and many of you have, you know that you go back to that over and over again. It's not something you just go, ah, well, no, you're going to pray. You're going to take it before God. If you're a Christian, you're going to beg God to do something. Think of this. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going to the temple. It says that there is a disabled blind guy sitting at the temple gate. Peter and John are walking by. He does what beggars do. He asks for money. Peter stops, looks right at him. It says he looks him in the eyes, and he says this, I don't have any money, but what I have I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he grabs the guy's hand. He lifts him up, and he's healed instantaneously. It says instantly in the text. Now here's the question. How many times did that beggar get put on the, at, the, at the gate? Even more so, how many times did Peter walk by him before he prayed for him? Peter went to the temple every day. And one day, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, God tells Peter that he's supposed to put out his hand, touch this guy, and say, in the name of Christ, stand up and walk, and he does it. But it's at the end, I think, at the end of massive struggle. So I want to suggest to you an instant happens at the end of a long progression of events. <clears throat> now, because of the, of the difficulty of the long, the word long, Oftentimes, I think we move into a point of hesitancy and asking. If I can be candid, uh, and maybe I'll go over a line here, I don't know. But there's an issue in my life right now where I'm fearful to ask God for answer. I just don't want to ask anymore. And the reason I don't want to ask is because I'm fearful... I, I, I want to protect God. Does that make sense? I, let me explain. I want to protect God because I'm, I'm fearful in my heart that if he doesn't come through, it's going to injure something very profound in my faith. I don't know where you are today, but based upon this text, I feel like we can still live in hope. In fact, I want to say it differently. I, I feel like we must, as a believing body of Christians, we must live in hope. That's still available. Because the, the fact is, to get a, a, a broader scope of this, this is God's story. I don't understand God. I used to understand him. When I was 20, 21, I, I knew God 
perfectly. I got it all. I figured, I mean, I had it all. Figured, I can't, I don't pick on 20-year-olds. <laughs> but, but you have to understand that there's a point where you intellectually you just go, I got it figured out. And then the older I got, the more I realized I didn't have it figured out. In fact, God became quite mysterious. He still is quite mysterious to me. I don't think that's a statement of unbelief. That's a statement of reality. He is much bigger than my boss. So, um, when we think about this situation, we've got to think about it in terms of the larger story of God. I believe, and I've had this kind of a creed, uh, God is never late, but he's rarely early. In fact, sometimes I feel like God's just capricious. Sometimes he's arbitrary. But in my saner moments, this is what I think. I think I realize that there is a grand process that I'm simply not privy to. Imagine that. Imagine that God hasn't included me in his grand scope of, uh, of his eternal knowing. Now, you might, um, you might be hearing this and think, well, that's a cop-out. That's really... But why would I attempt to simplify and reduce life down to assigning my event individualistically over everything else? Is that an appropriate way to live life? Why would I assume that there is nothing more to the story than me getting my answer when I want it? Nothing higher, nothing more profound, nothing to grapple with. Listen, the Christian life is a story. And in every story, in every narrative, there is suspense, there's drama, there's ups, there's downs, there's struggles, there's grinding, there's difficulty, and ultimately there's a consummation, a climax, a, a new creation. That's where we go to. But it is a part of that story. And in the middle of it, we go through stuff. And I believe that there is an immediate. I just don't know when it is. Okay, let me, let me I gotta move on because all this makes it sound like uh, God doesn't care. But if there's anything we can get from this text, we have to understand that God is concerned. We must observe finally that Jesus' core motive is something quite amazing, and that is compassion and expression. So what I want to do just for the remaining time is talk about two things that I think this story reveals about Christ and his kingdom. Um, number one, um, Christ was not unaffected, is not unaffected by your deepest needs. In other words, there are things that break God's heart. The, the story says that Christ turned toward them and had compassion on them. It's a very interesting word. Uh, splagnizomai is the word, and it really talks about this deep yearning, this um, compassion, as the text here, pity. In the Old Testament, the, the equivalent in the King James, it's the, it, this word. Uh, it, it's the same word for we get bowels. Now, uh, I'm really glad we don't use the King James anymore because it's really not a concept that most of us are used to using, like, oh, I have a lot of bowel for you or whatever. I mean, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there's, there's several texts in the Old Testament that are amazing. You'll, get, you'll love these. Genesis 43, 30, Joseph, it says, made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. <laughs> Here's another one. Lamentations 120. <laughs> the, 
they must have had some Mexican food before this one. <laughs> My bowels burned within me. <laughs> it really means to be distressed. Or, or John, what was the word you... Uh, Gut-wrenching. It, it, what it is, is they use the word bowels because it's deep within us, right? It's like, and it's this deep inner moving, and that's really what was going on with Christ. It wasn't like, man, I really feel sorry for these guys. No, he was moved. He, we see Jesus weeping. Why does he weep? What moves God? What creates this compassion? We see it over and over in the New Testament. And Jesus had, was moved with compassion toward them. I was visiting with a friend of mine, Jeff Schaefer, who's doing amazing work in Santa Barbara to affect homelessness there. And he was telling me, I just can't believe God is not concerned about those who are homeless in my city. I can't believe that God is not concerned about those who are impoverished or exploited or oppressed in my city. I can't believe it. See, I'm not sure what your theology is, but I believe when we talk about the, the consummated kingdom, we will not see homelessness. We will not see the oppressed. We will not see the exploited for sex. Literally, we will not see the blind. Blindness will be done away with. As a matter of fact, if you read the end of the book, it says there will be no more tears. There will be no more dying. All of these things are a byproduct of the consummation of all things. The telos. And so we look at the story, what we see is that is Jesus. Had this deep, compassionate feeling toward these men. And I think that's ours as well. The second thing I want to point out is that uh, he is concerned about the whole you. He's not just unaffected by your deepest need, but he is concerned about who you are. We see this over and over in Scripture. If you look at the text, we realize that Jesus touched almost everybody. Now, there were stories. We know Jesus didn't have to touch people. There were stories where he just goes, uh, make it so. And it happens. Then and a miracle happens. But over and over, we see him touching people in weird ways even. I mean, you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 22, or 23 and 24. It says, Jesus declared the kingdom of the, or gospel of the kingdom. He taught in the synagogues, and he healed every one of their diseases. It says the same thing in Matthew 9. But in Mark 7, it says this. There was this blind mute, and it says that he, uh, or he was a, a deaf mute. It says he put his fingers in his ears, and he spit, and then he touched his tongue, and then he was healed. Why? Here's another one. Mark 8. This is a blind man. Spits on the ground, makes some mud balls, sticks them on his eyes, on the blind guy's eyes, touches him, and then it says it touches him, and then he was healed. He could see. Matthew chapter 9. Young girl dies. Father comes and begs Jesus to come and do something. He goes to the house. The crowd says, there's no reason hurrying. She's dead. Jesus says, no, actually, she's just sleeping. She goes in, he goes in and says to the girl, raise up. And he just doesn't say it. He reaches out his hands and touches her and lifts her up and she raises from the dead. 
The, one of the most profound stories is in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. There's a leper. If you know anything about Old Testament law, a leper could not come in physical proximity with other people. They had to do the unclean thing. So if I'm within a certain distance from, from John back there, I have to go, unclean, unclean, so people don't get near me because I'm contagious. Jesus is walking by. He yells out. He asks for healing. And, and this is what the leper says. If you are willing, I can be clean. Jesus stops. He just doesn't say, be healed. He goes over and he touches the leper. Breaks the rules. He says, I'm willing. And the guy's cleansed from his leprosy. See, the, the reality is, this idea of touch is such an important component to who we are as people. Because we're Western people, we're, we're from a Hellenistic background, we're, we're more the r rationalist part, and we, the, the idea of, of emotion and physical communication, non-sexual physical communication, is sometimes uh, a broken or lost piece of our environment. But we actually come from a Hebraic background as well, as far as our faith is concerned. And emotion and this outpour of, of uh, affection and physical touch was very much a part of that. And I really believe part of the problem for us is we're more of a byproduct of, of Western philosophy. Like Plato, we're, we're the embodied spirit. The, the body really isn't that important, but when we look at the stories of Scripture, we know that this, the body is important. You are not just a spirit. So God cares about all of us, our whole self. There's something quite powerful about non-physical touch or non-sexual touch. Now, one of the cool things that happens, to me at least, when I'm preparing for a talk, is God will just drop an illustration on me in weird times. And I have this thing about my phone. I, I don't really turn it off. I turn the ringer off. But I use it as my alarm clock, too, and I have it on my bed stand. And, you know, people send me junk at weird hours. And, of course, I'm up at 4, so I'm hearing things at weird hours now. And so about 4.30 this morning, my phone vibrates on my bed stand. And, of course, I don't have anything else to do. So I pick it up, and I look at it, and it's, it's the morning devotion from Henry Nouwen. And this is what it's entitled, The Power of Touch. Why, thank you. <laughs> I was looking for this. <clears throat> and this is what Henry Nouwen says. Touch. Yes, touch speaks the, wordless wor the wordless words of love. We receive so much touch when we are babies and so little when we are adults. Still, in friendship, touch often gives more life than words. A friend's hand stroking our back. A friend's arm resting on our shoulder. A friend's finger wiping our tears away. A friend's lips kissing our forehead, which I got one of those today by Danielle. These are true consolations. These moments of touch are truly sacred. They restore they reconcile, they reassure, they forgive, they heal. We just, I think we just feel funny because it's exploited and, and twisted so much in our culture, but I think we have to reacquaint ourselves with this. Well, that's one of the reasons I like going to Europe because I, I, I like kissing. And, you know, when you're in Europe, you get to kiss, and it's cultural. You have to make sure you know where you're at because they have different rules for kissing. Like in your France, it's left, right, and you're in Holland, it's left, right, left, and you know, and I, I sometimes I just don't know what to do. 
So my friend Vincent, I asked him, what do you do? I mean, I, is it left, right, left, right, left? What is it? She's, you're just going strong. <laughs> so it takes me about two days to start kissing, because I don't know, I, I don't kiss here. I kiss my wife, my kids, but I don't kiss everyone else. So it takes about two or three days to go, okay, I'll try it. <laughs> you know? And, and uh, so, uh, I, I, by the time I get to London, we're at our leadership summit, and I see this young couple that I really appreciate so much here in Barcelona. Jen Powell is the wife's name, and I, I'm kissing by then. So there, she's talking. I just thought I'd come up and give her a kiss on the cheek, and she like turned toward. She saw me out of the corner of her eye. She turned toward me right as I was going for her cheek. It's one of those like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assure you, she was more freaked out than I was. <laughs> she did not want to kiss me. So when we look at the text, we, we see Jesus with this profound compassion. And we see Jesus not just saying, yeah, I really care, but actually manifesting some sort of gesture, touch. That's precisely why we cannot ignore the physical needs of those around us. Now, let me close with this. I, I believe this all relates to the, the idea of the kingdom of God. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Parker Palmer. And uh, uh, recently I was uh, engaged in some of the stuff that he was talking about. He, talk, he has this concept he calls uh, the tragic gap. And the tragic gap is essentially in life we, have, we are able to see these things that are, are painful and challenging uh, in our lives. We see oppression. We see exploitation. We see poverty. We see murder. We see all of these different things. We see isolationism. We see uh, individualism and so forth. And, and he says that's actually one side, and those are real. But we also get a chance to see the alternative, which I would say, put in kingdom language, the things the way they're supposed to be. So if we see poverty, we can actually see in real time the answer to that poverty. Those who are in, in poverty fed. Or those who are exploited free. Or those who are in isolation in community. Those who are in in fragmentation in an organization or a church or whatever can actually move toward collaboration and forgiveness, right? We can actually see that. It's not just a dream. We get a chance to see it. And he says the role for us as Christians is to stand in that tragic gap. But while we stand in that tragic gap, two things can happen. Number one, we can become quite cynical because we see all the different pain that's going on in the world. And he calls that corrosive cynicism, where we just become biting and and uh, hardened by those things that we see. The other side is, he says, it's irrelevant idealism, where we begin to spiritualize everything. Where we begin to like, oh, you know, the Lord's will, da, da, da. You know, we go into this weird spiritualization, and we ignore the hard things, the broken things of the world. And he says, even though those, those things seem to be pulled or opposites, they actually take you to the same place, and that is away from that tragic gap. Contrarily, he would say our challenge is, is to move toward this idea of what he would say, creative tension. Now, there's tension, there's destructive tension, and if we allow ourselves to move toward a destructive tension, what happens is our hearts get broken by those things in the world, but they get broken apart, they get fragmented. And if you've been around a while, you see this. The people who have had their hearts broken apart, 
and they can never get over it. They carry it to their last breath. But he would say, if we move into to this creative tension, our hearts aren't broken apart, but our hearts are broken open. And when I read this story, that's what I see. I see Jesus uh, with his heart broken open for these two guys. His heart was actually broken. And because of that, he reached out and touched. In a mysterious way, that's our role. And we see that scripturally, theologically. We are the body of Christ. I mean, that's what Jesus did, and that's, that's our role. We are his body here now. And so our hearts have to be broken open, but we have to extend ourselves. It's not just enough to feel sorry. We have to touch. Compassion, touch. That's the story. 